I want to continue today. Uh, I've got three different titles for our sermon today. That does not mean I have three different sermons, although it could mean that. Um, I started, yeah, please don't. Hey, you don't know. It could be you, man. This could be good, Paul. This could actually be good. He's like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Whatever. Um, I started with epilogue because there are just some things about the prodigal son story that need to be to- need to be told. Um, there are some loose ends that we can wrap up. Uh, I mean, then I went to um, a conversation that I've been alluding to for the last three weeks, and that conversation is simply, um, how far does grace go? When does grace end? Um, we've talked a lot about grace through this series, um, and you know the inevitable question that comes up when we start talking about grace is simply, when do we stop giving grace? When is the point that we say, nope, now we're moving into whatever, accountability or um, consequence or punishment or whatever? And within the Christian faith, we tend to move and in one of two different places. We tend to move all grace, and it's like, doesn't matter, doesn't matter, just doesn't matter. Or we move into punishment and accountability, which is you messed up, now you're going to pay the price. Now, depending on where you grew up, you could have been anywhere on either of those two sides or possibly somewhere on a spectrum in the middle. Um, So I want to try to address that. But then I came up with a third title because I didn't feel like that was really sufficient for what I wanted to share with you today. And so the third possible title for this is, How Do You Live a Great Life? All three are about the same sermon, and I think all three is what I want to share with you um, just about this story. In part one of the good news, if you'll remember, we've been sharing with you that part of our mission statement, of or not part of, but our mission statement moving forward, um, we've adjusted. We have in the past simply had the mission statement, love God, love people, period, and that is sufficient. That is still the case for us. However, um, that doesn't really necessarily communicate a whole lot today when we have so many different types of churches and so many different types of interpretations of what it means to love God and to love people. So um, the statement we've been using is simply this. We are a community of changed people who seek to be with Jesus, to become more like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. And so we are spending these next few weeks together basically breaking those down. And the Good News series has been all about being with Jesus. Then we're going to follow this up um, with a series um, on what does it look like to become like Jesus. But we're not going to, it's not going to be your typical, you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, you need to come to church, you need to give. It's not going to be that typical type of series. But we're going to talk about what does it really look like, big picture, to become more like Jesus. And so we're going to talk about Uh, the things that discipleship leads us to, and what that resists. And so, for example, we want to worship, but we want to resist idolatry. So how do we understand kind of the extremes, and then what does it look like to become like Jesus? We're going to do that for a few weeks, and then we're going to follow that up with a series on what does it look like to do what Jesus did. And um, that will probably wrap all of that up around 1st of February, end of January, um, and then uh, we'll go from there. But in part one of the good news and this focus of being with Jesus, uh, we, we basically said these two things. We can be with Jesus forever, and this good news came at a cost that we did not have to pay because God loved us. Next slide. We're on. There we go. 
Or I might be looking at the slides backwards. Yeah. Um, we can be with Jesus forever. And this good news came at a cost that we did not have to pay because God loved us. In part two, we looked specifically at the younger brother and we said this, that the gift of salvation really is a free gift. The younger son did not have to do anything. His father welcomed him back. But yet the younger son came back looking to do something. He came back looking to repay a debt that he had occurred. And he recognized the life he was pursuing wasn't working. That's when I first introduced the idea of the uncomfortable question. If we can't do anything to earn it, can we do something to lose it? It's another uncomfortable question in this parable. Um, we said that the gift must be seen as valuable, that the free gift can't be earned, but we still have to choose it. And that the good news is that no matter how broken or battered you are, Jesus wants to fully restore you. And also the good news is that no matter how many bad choices you've made in your life, you are one choice away from a better life. Last week we talked about the elder brother, and usually when we talk about the parable of the prodigal son, we end with the younger brother. The lost have been found. That is the point of the parable. Now we should go out looking for the lost, and you can know Jesus. The lost can be found. However, what we discovered with this story is the story doesn't follow a typical pattern of building up and then having some kind of a climax and then some kind of a resolution. There is no resolution in this story. So the younger brother comes back and apparently he's working and he's welcomed back into the family. A third of the inheritance is, is gone. And so they have less than what they had before. Uh, but we really don't know what happens with him or the father. Does he learn? Does he get better? Does he fall back into the same patterns? We don't know. But we also don't know what happens with the elder brother because he's angry that his brother has come back. He's probably angry because a third of all of the inheritance is gone and he is not, he's not only not welcoming him back, this is not a sign of something to be celebrated. And in that period of history and in that you know, part of the world, it wouldn't have been. You would have been disowned. The younger brother would have been disowned and would have nothing to do with the family ever again had he done something like this. And that is not what the father did. And the elder brother is angry. We discovered you can be lost and irreligious and you can be lost and very moralistic. We can do everything right and be just as lost as the one who goes off and squanders it all. Both are lost. And at the end of the story, when the elder brother finds out and he's angry, the father's pleading with him to come and celebrate, and the story's over. We have no idea how it ends. Part three, what we shared was the older brother shows us the danger of doing religious things without knowing what it means to be truly saved. So that brings us to today. Where does grace end? Or how to live a great life. If you're wondering, how can those two things um, be in the same sermon? Uh, I hope that you know the answer by the time we're done. But in order to get back on the same page, and for those of you, this is your first time with us, um, let's just start back with the story itself. Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11. This is the story, the parable of the, of the prodigal. And hopefully those of you who have been with us for the last few weeks, um, as we read through this story, some different you're going to see it differently than maybe you've seen it in the past. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. 
Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son of yours comes, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you were always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let me ask you a question for you to consider in a little different direction than we would typically go with the story of the prodigal son. This is my question. Thinking about their lives and what they want. I think the average person, when they come to some place of deciding do i want anything to do with christianity or with god or with the church are basically asking themselves the question does this make my life better or is my life better apart from all of this religious stuff so let me ask you between these two sons which of the two sons was living the better life i just want you to consider that Now, I don't just mean after the younger brother got in trouble. (laughs) After he squandered it all, now he's working for somebody and feeding pigs and he's hungry. I don't mean then. I think most of us would say, well, that doesn't seem like a better life. Which of the two sons was living the better life? The older son was doing pretty well. He still had his position, still had his station, still had food to eat. He still had clothes. He hadn't done anything wrong in his own mind. But yet, when the time came to forgive his younger brother, he was angry. Have you ever been so angry in your life, you just didn't want to be angry, but you couldn't stop? And in that moment of your life, would you say, now that was a good life? Probably not. 
So there are times that we assume that having position and having security and having enough money and having enough things, somehow that makes for a good life until something goes wrong and then we are miserable even when we have all of the things that we long for. You can work and get all the things that you want out of life and life can still be disappointing to you. It's interesting how generationally we go through, and I was thinking back just through growing up and what I imagined a good life would be. As you think back, and I don't want, you, I don't want details here, but as you think back over what you expected your life to be right now at this moment, let's say 30 years ago and you thought about your life right now at this moment, how many say, would say it's exactly what I hoped for? Cindy? All right. Bruce? Of course, Bruce is retired, so he's, yeah, I mean. But most of us would say, I really thought my life would be different at this point. Now, it doesn't always mean that you're disappointed, but I find, at least among my peers, a great deal of people that tend to be disappointed in how their life works out, even though they get most of the things they were looking for out of it. When I was younger, I remember thinking, um, uh, well, before I, before I go there, I grew up with two parents that grew up very modestly. Neither of them would I consider or would they have considered themselves in poverty, but they also didn't have anything extra. Kind of what Cindy is saying, you've got enough, but nothing, for them they had nothing extra. They came from very, very humble means. And my dad decided early in his life he wanted to become a dentist, and so he did, and he became a very successful dentist. And so he had everything he ever wanted, and in that scenario, as a child growing up in a household that could have everything that they ever wanted, I was very disappointed that my parents would not give me everything that I ever wanted. And I remember when I was a kid, remember... You remember when you, I guess they still have them, you would have the little bubble toy dispensaries at fast food restaurants or at restaurants. You put in a nickel or a dime or a quarter, I don't know, maybe it's like four quarters now. I don't know how much it is with inflation. And you would turn the thing and the little bubble would pop out and you would get this like one cent spider ring or something, you know, something or like a bouncy ball. And you just thought, this is, this is the greatest thing ever. Do you know who never got to get a bubble toy. It was me. Never got a bubble toy. Never. I know. I know. It's a hard life. It's a hard life. You Now you know I come from hard places. I come from hard places. Never got a bubble toy. And I remember when I was young thinking, you know what I'm going to do? And I imagine this was a moment after I had asked for the umpteenth time, for a bubble toy, and heard, no, you will not get a bubble toy, I remember thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a good job, I'm going to make a lot of money, and I'm going to buy as many bubble toys as I want. That's how I'm going to live my life. I was probably 15 at the time. Maybe, you know, maybe a little younger. A little younger than that. And I just remember thinking, and, and just... <clears throat> 
The thing that I would eventually learn, which took me many years to learn, was that um, parents that came from humble means ended up giving away a lot of what they had. And, and they are two of the most generous people I have ever known in my life. It took me a long time to recognize that, which also generationally, I've discovered that as we're younger, kind of that youthful optimism of the ability to buy as many bubble toys as you want begins to fade once you start getting bills. Because when Deidre and I got married, and then we, we started off living our family, um, we, I mean, we had very little. And, and having very little, we had a car that was not great. And when you have a car that's not great, you end up having to fix that car, um, which is expensive. Or you learn how to do it yourself. But I remember when I was a teenager, following up from my dream to have all the bubble toys I could possibly imagine within my life, following up with, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into business, specifically finance. I'm going to move to New York. And in my life, here's what a good life was. To have everything I could possibly ever want, and then some. And in my mind, that is what a good life would look like. And my guess is, though it may, may not word it in that way, the average person views life in exactly that way. So that was my plan. And I did go to UT in Knoxville to pursue a career in finance. And I anticipated being the next whoever, um, which every youthful person does until you realize it's really hard to become the next whoever. When I was in college, I went to work at a camp that my sister um, worked at, and I discovered something. I discovered a level of friendship with people that I had never experienced up until that moment within that life. It was not that I had not ever had friends. I didn't come from that place where I never had any friends. However, my friends, my friendships were often dependent on something. Now, you probably know how that feels. So I went and worked at this camp in college, and uh, I was on this path. I was going to come do this thing. I was going to do this good thing and spend my summer, make a little bit of money. Then I'd go back into my studies in finance. And just something so important in my life in that moment happened. I developed the kind of friendships that they were your friend no matter what. I mean, we would get together around a campfire and not want to leave. We would laugh and we would tell stories and we would tell jokes. We would ask about what's going on in each other's lives. We would encourage each other. I mean, we would just spend time together. It was just the kind of thing that, you know, there was never a silent moment. You just kept talking, and then it would get so late that you would be like, you know what, we got to go. We'll pick this up. Hey, let's do this again tomorrow night, all right? It was that kind of a friendship, and it, it was so fulfilling to me that it was, in that moment, outside of my own faith in Christ, was the most fulfilling thing I had experienced, and it shifted my understanding of what a good life looked like. You don't have to go far to find the American dream. I had bought in hook, line, and sinker. And while there are absolutely those that live the American dream and feel fulfilled at the end, the vast majority do not. 
We have story after story after story of, I have it, but it's empty. The elder brother had it, but it was empty. The idea that we would offer grace to the younger brother, it didn't elicit any kind of compassion or grace. What it, elic- in, what it brought out of him was anger because he's seen this thing played out, this welcome, this love, this let's celebrate, this party, and inside of him he felt some emptiness and that it only elicited anger out of him. And so the elder brother, while in many of our minds is living the better life, some of the things that are most important in life he was missing. So I'm not sure that he was. The younger brother, well, he made lots of mistakes. I mean, lots of mistakes. He told his dad, I wish you were dead. Your only value to me is your stuff. And then he squandered it all. He made a lot of mistakes. But then in this moment, he found something different. He found that there could be a good life in a different way. And it had everything to do with being welcomed back, being welcomed into a family. I think what I discovered on that summer working at camp was the difference between expected value and true value. There's a difference between expected value and true value. I expected that the pursuit of all the things that I could consume within my life would have great value for me. But when I discovered relationships that were true, deep friendships, I find that was true value and unexpected. I think within our lives, what we find when we look at the Father is a Father who understands what true value is. I find it interesting also just how does, like, this is a parable, so we, we can take analogies too far, but how, you know, how does a father have sons that are this different from each other? That's an interesting idea. How, how can we be so different and raised in the, exactly, in the exact same environment? Ken brought up a good question last week. He said, why didn't the father tell the older son about the party? Uh, why did he find out about it from someone in the field headed into the party? Like everybody else knew about it seemingly before the elder brother did. And I don't really have an answer. I still, I said, I'm going to think about that this week. I still don't have an answer for that. I, I, what are we missing in this story? What are we missing in the tradition of this story um, that speaks to that? I couldn't, I couldn't find a definitive answer on any of that other than the father was so excited that he just wanted to welcome back. I did come across one article talking about this story from a guy who was a just reported expert on ancient Near Eastern traditions, and he said um, the significance of the father running. What we've what, what we've talked about so far is that just a patriarch does not run, and a patriarch does not run because patriarchs wore dresses. Everybody wore dresses, you know, you wore a tunic, and so to run you had to hike it up, and you had to run, and patriarchs don't show their legs. And, you know, I was talking to Bruce, who shortened it today. It's November. He's still in shorts. I'll probably have shorts on after I get out of here. But you didn't wear shorts back then. You, you did not show your legs. To show your legs was a sign of great disrespect and a lack of value. I mean, it was a very different culture 
than what we have today. And, and so we, we can easily take away from that that he was running out of excitement and even showed his leg and was willing to be shamed for it. But interesting what I found in this, this story was that the tradition in the community would have been that the community would have stepped in and told the younger son, you're not welcome back into this community. And so likely the reason the father ran was not just excitement, but there was a time period that if he didn't get in and intervene fast enough, the community would have taken over and expelled him from the community. So he ran to step in between the response he should have gotten to say, no, this is my son, I am welcoming him back. I think he was a fascinating way of looking at that. But the father, different from his two sons, he saw value differently. He saw a good life differently. And he saw the ability to offer grace as something that was inherent to living a good life. It's easy in our lives when we get hurt by someone to lash out with anger or at least vengeance. At least in some way repay what has been done to us. It is a natural feeling for any one of us to do that. And I challenge you this past week, I don't know if any of you did it, if any of you ended up in some conflict with your spouse, if you told them just don't be mad, and if that worked, I asked you to come back and report back. So I don't know if any of you tried that or not, but when those feelings come, you know it is not easy for us just to erase them. We feel what we feel. Our minds can tell us We shouldn't feel that way, but that never seems to work for me. We feel what we feel, but the father saw something very different. His idea of value in a good life was very different than the others. So which of the two sons was living the better life? I think we each have to come to that conclusion within our own own lives. As I look back on my experience in accepting Christ as my Savior, I've shared this story. I'm not going to go into all the details again, but I've shared this story before. And what I found within that moment of my life is the thing I pursued. I was a teenager in high school. And the thing I was pursuing, my expected value was position, which is determined by popularity, which then in my mind equates acceptance. And at some level, celebration of. Who doesn't want to be celebrated? And I remember deciding, and I came to some, some just, I don't know, epiphany as a sophomore in high school, if I would just do the things that the popular kids do, I'll have acceptance and I'll have security and maybe even I'll be celebrated. But I found that by doing those things, while I tended to be more accepted by some... And while I tended to be more celebrated by some, what I found was within me, I kept getting emptier and emptier at the things I was having to do for that acceptance and for that celebration and for that security. And that emptiness did not feel any better than a lack of security, a lack of acceptance, or a lack of being celebrated. It, in fact, in many ways was worse. And that was the moment in which I said, Jesus, I, I don't know if you remember me, but this, is, this life is not working out for me. This is not a good life I'm, I'm entering into. It's supposed to be. I'm getting the things I set out to get, 
but I'm feeling very empty inside and that emptiness won't go away and it's the worst when I'm by myself. And I remember in those moments just feeling the presence of Christ and I found true value. See, there are things in this world that we think are going to fill us and they don't. And then there are things we never realized even existed and they fill us beyond what we can possibly comprehend. Which of the two sons was living a better life? There's a difference between expected value versus true value. One of the things we hope to do through this series is just to talk about the value of being with Jesus. For me, the value of being with Jesus is the ability to see the world differently. The friendships that I have with people that value Jesus are far deeper than the friendships I have with people who do not. We see the world differently. We see each other differently. I can screw up more with those friends than I can with those that, you know, they don't value Jesus, being with Jesus in their life. We talk about different things. We get excited about different things. Whenever I get together with them, I look forward to getting together more with them. It's not that I don't look forward to getting together with my friends that don't enjoy being with Jesus. But there is a difference for me. I share things with the people that I know are on a journey with Christ. I share more things with them than people who I know are not on a journey with Christ. However, it doesn't mean I don't share the bad stuff with them in my life. One of the things we Christians can be really guilty of is sugarcoating a life that's not perfect. And then we say, you can have this perfect life if you just have Jesus. And then they come and accept Jesus and they're like, what happened to my life? My life's not sugarcoated. I know, I was just kidding. My life was really bad when I told you that. But I was afraid you wouldn't ask Jesus into your heart if you knew. You know? It's a terrible bait and switch we do when we don't share the hard things in our life. But there are some deep things within us that I will more openly share with my brothers and sisters who are also on the same journey that I'm on. There's true value in those types of relationships. As you can probably guess, as you're trying to piece together what I'm aiming at, there is something about relationships and a good life. There is something that you're missing if you don't have those kinds of relationships within your life. If you think, but the story of Jesus is the story of Jesus dying on the cross so that we could be saved, so that one day we could go to heaven. And I hope, for those of you who have been with us for a while, you've heard me say enough times, eternal life is about a quality of life here, now, and forevermore. Why in the world would we hope in something in heaven that we can't experience in any way here? Early Christians did not believe that. They didn't separate that. They didn't say good life when you die, rough life when you're alive. They said, even when we're dying, we have a good life. Even when we're persecuted, this is preferable. Even when people are coming out at us and hate us, look, we have found Jesus and that is better than anything. What can anyone do to me? I have Jesus. These are the types of things they talked about. Not either or, both and. Jesus would sum up all of the law, which was the way that you understood coming into the presence of God. He summed it all up by saying it is all about relationships. You're thinking, where is that verse? You know where that verse is. 
when he said, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That's relational. And the second is like it. You will love each other the way you love yourself. That's relational. There is something that God is trying to bring us back to that is true value, that is relational. It's really just been in the last... 2,000 years that we primarily look at life through the lens of individuality versus community. It was always about community. When we look at these stories in the Old Testament, life was about family. Life was about community. I mean, like, literally. That's how you survived. That's how you fended off raiders. That's how you farmed and how you had enough food for everybody to eat. Your children were so important because... I mean, that's kind of who came up to replace you, and that's how you grew your family, and how you grew the ability to care for the community. Our community was so vitally important, but it's just been in the last couple of thousand years that we've really focused on this idea of individual purpose, individual growth, individual attainment. There's just something about the good news that says you're okay with God and with some really great people. The kind of okay that other people look from outside and say, I want that too. That's why I'm just not a fan. I've I've gone through the programs and I've done the events and things when we go out and we knock on doors and we say, hi, my name is Mark, I'm a member of such and such a church, I just want you to, to ask you a question, if you wouldn't mind, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? I mean, how in the world do you communicate the value of relationship through that question? But that makes sense to us in this world and in this culture because we're so transactional. You can get more for your money, but you've got to buy the right thing. That's how I thought life would be when I was a child. And as I've gotten older, I've found, you know, you, you do have to have enough money. Let's not be silly. I mean, if you don't know where your next meal's coming from, it really doesn't matter how many friends you have unless that means they're going to help feed you. If your car breaks down and you can't fix it, I mean, it's great that you have friends around the campfire, but you've got to fix your car. I mean, there are some basic things and needs the community is supposed to come alongside and help. So I don't want to say, you know what? Here's what you need to do. Quit all your jobs and hang out around a campfire. Don't do that. Keep your jobs. There's something different about true value, though. For me, the value of being with Jesus, you were wholeheartedly loved and valued. How many relationships do we have in our lives that we are wholeheartedly loved and valued? You were absolutely accepted. You were completely changed. You're never alone. God is with you. Some things I I was thinking through, what do I think it means for me to be with Jesus? Being a part of His family. Having the Holy Spirit within us. The ability to obey, not because I'll be in trouble if I don't, but because obeying leads to things that lead to true value very different way of understanding obedience. If I don't obey, God's going to be mad at me and He's going to do something. He's going to make my car break down. Versus, I do the things that Jesus did 
And life just is better that way. It's just better. Experiencing God in community, like today, with us together. And maybe for you, less this moment, maybe it was more just hanging out outside talking before you came in. Maybe that was a moment for you that is going to mean more to you today than anything we did in this room. But that leads us to a question still. I mean, the son screwed up. Should he not be held accountable? Should he have been welcomed back in his family? I mean, look at all the people he hurt. How many people did they have to lay off because now they don't have the land to work? Maybe those people got hired by whoever the new landowners are. Shouldn't he be held accountable? Where does grace end? That is a hard question for us to answer sometimes. Because the Bible is ripe with language around accountability and our favorite word in certain streams, judgment. What about the judgment? I'm going to do my best to un- just in the next couple of minutes. I'm almost done. If you're thinking, oh boy, now we're getting ready to go into something else. I'm almost done. I just for a couple of minutes what my best understanding of how to answer this question for me. I'm not saying that next week I won't have a different understanding, but I've been coming to this understanding for quite a while. Um, This is kind of where I am today. My best understanding of grace versus judgment, accountability versus forgiveness. Um, This is my best stab at it. So um, if I'm completely wrong, maybe I'll have a retraction in a few weeks. I don't know. But this is where I am right now. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I've mentioned from time to time um, our Bema group, and um, one of the most significant conversations my wife and I have had as we've gone through the Bema podcast with Marty Solomon was in the Old Testament um, it was, I can't remember if this was the exact title, Ashley, you probably know, um, but it was Walking the Blood Covenant. Is that the t- name of the podcast, Walking the Blood Covenant? Okay. And it was such an interesting thing that I have known this story, but it was not until I listened to Marty Solomon talk about it that I really embraced it differently. And it is just, I can't tell you how many conversations Dieter and I have had over this to this day about what is, what is the significance of God saying there are two parties within this covenant. And traditionally, there's a giver and there's a receiver, and the giver has to commit to give if the conditions are met, and the receiver has to commit to meeting the conditions and holding the giver accountable to give the thing they promised in order for this contract to be binding and to end the way it's supposed to end. And yet in Abraham's dream and God is cutting this covenant with him, he walks both sides. And so we would talk about the blood path. Typically when you would make this commitment, take an animal, you know, cut it in half, and you would walk between and there would be kind of this um, idea that let be done to me what we've done to this animal if I am to not keep the covenant in which I am making with you. And normally God would walk one and Abraham should walk the other And God said, nope, I'm going to walk both sides. I'm going to walk both ways of the blood covenant. You can't keep this covenant, God would probably say to Abraham. You're not capable, but I am, and I'm going to do this for you. 
Jesus does the exact same thing on the cross for us. He walks the blood covenant for us so that we are saved by grace through faith because of what Christ did on the cross. The uncomfortable question still remains, if we can't do something to earn it, what can we do to lose it? Now, this very way of thinking has led some people to go in the direction of saying, well, it doesn't matter whether you want to have anything to do with them or not. You're saved. Every human on the face of the earth is saved whether they want it or not. And yet, in order to come to that conclusion about grace, you have to ignore a whole lot of Scripture, even to the point of Jesus saying to a group of people, like, you're coming at me like we have something here, but depart from me. You don't know me. So where does the grace end? Where are we in trouble at this point? And as I think through all of the scriptures I can think of on, on salvation and accepting grace and how should we extend grace to others, I mean, what about when they really hurt us? What if they kill us? You know, I mean, that's where scripture, scripture goes that far. Like, if someone wants to take your life, there's no greater love than to give your life for a friend. I mean, we're supposed to, if an enemy comes... We're supposed to love them. If they, if they slap us, then we turn the other cheek. If, if they ask for something, we give them more than they ask for. I, I mean, the Scriptures go pretty extensively into saying accountability is not your primary concern. So, so where does grace end? And I've come to this place and this conclusion and understanding where grace ends by seeing where does God's grace end in Scripture to people? Where does judgment come? And almost every time judgment comes, it is not simply because you are rejecting Him, it is because you are hurting someone else. Where does grace end? I think grace ends when our choices hurt others. Well, that doesn't feel comprehensive enough. I know, doesn't it? Grew up in a system where you screw up, God's ready to punish. And He's gonna He's gonna put it down right there on you. I mean, in the worst of all, if you don't say the right prayer, you're gonna burn forever in hell. Where does grace end? Another important reality that I have come to understand is if we understand that judgment is the presiding over the issuance of justice, okay? Rather than judgment, like I judge you and punish you, judgment being a judge who presides over and says, I am dishing out justice. So how do we understand justice throughout the Scriptures? And what we find is a woman at the well who uh, Jesus just graciously invites into a relationship with him without any condemnation at all, and then you have that same Jesus walking into the temple, overturning tables for the religious leaders, telling them they're a brood of vipers, and they are due judgment. It's still the younger brother and the elder brother. It's the same story. And there's a difference in two important understandings of justice. One is restorative justice, and the other is retributive justice. We practice retributive justice in, in the United States of America. If you mess up, you will go to jail. 
depending on how bad you messed up, you will stay there and you will pay your dues. It's, it's retributive. Um, you've done something bad. And you've hurt someone. Now we're going to hurt you. And yet in other parts of the world, restorative justice is exercised. Restorative justice says you need to, and to the best of your ability, make amends for the, the harm that you have caused. doesn't mean that there is no punishment, but the focus is on restoring what has been lost Versus punishing those who have lost something. And I think in that mindset, the way we do just our penal system, the way we understand justice in America is retributive, punitive. You mess up, you're punished. But yet we see with God over and over again, and we see it greatly with the younger brother, he is due justice. He is due retribution. He is due punitive damages. And yet he says, bring him a coat. Give him a ring. Kill the fattened calf. Let's throw a party. What was lost is now found. It is not retributive. It is restorative. So where does grace end? I do think there's a place that we don't simply sit, sit by and say, oh, whatever you want to do, do it. I mean, our kids, one of the things we wanted to teach our kids was if you're standing there and someone's picking on another kid, go to the aid of the kid who's getting picked on. The grace would be, oh, you want to pick on him? If that's how you feel full of life, pick away. You know, restorative is different. If you see a kid who's sitting by themselves at a lunch table and no one else wants to sit with them, hey, you know what? Take the hit on the reputation and sit with them. That's one of the lessons we wanted our kids to learn. Take the hit, sit with the kid that no one else will sit with. There are times that we step into a situation and intentionally get hurt. And that can be an expression of grace. There's a time we step into a situation and we offer great forgiveness, which is an expression of grace. What we find with God over and over again, the people that he withheld grace from were the people who were intentionally trying to hurt others and specifically using religion to do it. It's a difference in retributive versus restorative justice. You have to come to the conclusion for yourself. Now, don't misunderstand. If, if our kids do something wrong in our house, we don't just go, okay. I mean, we have some retribution in the house. We have some punitive damages in the house whenever it comes to parenting. Don't get me wrong. But are we working to restore? Are we simply trying to punish? Those are two very different ways of understanding judgment. God is working to restore. He's been working to restore since the garden. This is what I'm going to leave you with. And then I'm going to let you wrestle with it because... The story is so good, you should be wrestling with the story on your own. It seems that grace is being given for you to experience true value in this life. You can accept or reject it. We do have to choose. Those who reject it will never experience it, no matter how much religious stuff they do. Those who recognize its value will have it, no matter how many mistakes they make. But the choice is yours.
The good news is not simply that he will send you to an eternal punishment in hell. The good news is that by choosing the way of Christ, you can experience eternal life right here and right now. It's your choice. And God's not looking to just beat you over the head if you don't choose it, but you're not, you're just going to miss the things that happen when you follow Christ. And for me, some of those have been, some of the deepest, most meaningful things have been deeper, better relationships with him and with others. That's all I got for you today. Do you feel um, excited with zero resolution? Because you might. Do you leave this place? You need to come to an understanding of what these things mean to you. Where does grace end? You need to come to a place of saying, What's, what was my expected value within life that's really been disappointing? And then where's true value? You've got to come to that conclusion about your life. The good news is, is that the opportunity is available right in front of us. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who will open the door and invite me in, I will come in and I will eat with you or sup with you, depending on your translation, or I will be with you. He stands at the door and knocks. Why does a creator of all things knock on the door? What a picture of grace for him, even when we are fully making mistakes in our life. Pray with me, Father. I pray.